This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. All right, Galatians 6, verses 11 through 18. Follow with me as we read these concluding paragraphs. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me. And I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. But a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule. Peace and mercy be upon them. And upon the Israel of God. From now on let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit brothers. Amen. Amen. It's an axiom among those who speak publicly that you should follow this pattern. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Then tell them. Then tell them what you've told them. Well, I believe that Paul followed that template as he brings this letter to the church at Galatia to a close. Because in these final verses... He reiterates again the main themes of the letter because repetition is important. We learn by repetition. In fact, research shows that on average, a person needs to hear a message seven times before they take action. So with that in mind, Paul wants to emphasize what he's going to reiterate in this conclusion. And he does so by drawing attention to what he's about to write. Verse 11, Paul says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. So now a change has occurred. Up to this point, Paul had been following the common practice of using a secretary, one who was skilled in writing and recording things. Often it would be like a person taking dictation as they wrote what Paul was speaking. But now at the conclusion, Paul picks up the quill himself to begin writing letters. It was a common practice of that day for the author of the letter to finish the letter to prove its authenticity. Just like in many ways today, a letter may be typed and then presented to the the boss or whomever so they can sign it in their own hand to show that what is written is their words. So Paul verifies this letter by drawing attention to the fact that he's writing with his own hand in very large letters. And we're not exactly sure what this means exactly. Some think that writing in bold letters in that day and age was akin to today typing out a message using all caps or doing it in bold, a way to emphasize what is being stated. And that could be factual in this case. Paul is emphasizing the conclusion as he sums up the point of the letter. Some think, however, Paul is reminding them that he is writing to them at great pains because his eyesight is bad. So he has to write with large letters like we would use a, a large print Bible. 
Now, there could be some veracity to this because we see earlier in the letter, Paul says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Some scholars believe that mentioning a bodily ailment, a condition, and then that they would have given him their eyes shows that Paul may have suffered bad eyesight in some way. Either way, however, I think it's clear that Paul is emphasizing what he is about to say. And the words that he writes in this conclusion are words that give us a guide to avoid the pitfalls that were placed in front of the church at Galatia. Because these pitfalls are in front of every believer in every age. Three pitfalls to avoid, starting with the pitfall of pride. Verse 12, Paul begins to address the motivation that prompted these false teachers to push this church toward circumcision. Remember that the premise of these false teachers was this. You have faith in Christ that saves you. But to validate your faith, to show that you are a part of the family of God, you must be circumcised. Because that was the symbol of God's people going all the way back to even Abraham and certainly to Moses. So Paul has argued to them that Jesus has changed things. Jesus has ushered in the new covenant. And in the new covenant, it is the Spirit of God indwelling the believer that is the sign, the verifying sign of faith. So Paul, to reveal the duplicity of these false teachers, shows their motivation. He says they simply want to make a good showing in the flesh. Now, in this phrase in verse 12, in the flesh refers to their bodies. He's not talking about the sinful nature here. He's saying that in their lives, they want to make a good showing. That's a phrase that literally reads, put on a good face. They want to impress those that, that see the church, whether it be teachers in Jerusalem or those that surround them in Galatia. And their motivation for this is pride. Wanting people to think well of them. This is a temptation that is as old as creation itself. Pride refers to a deep pleasure or satisfaction that is derived from one's own achievements. It's self-reliance. Self-centeredness. Pride refuses to acknowledge any weakness and certainly refuses any help. Pride keeps an attitude of, I can do it. I have the strength. I have the power. I have the mentality. I can do this out of sheer willpower. I am good enough. And there are words in Scripture that God gives to the prideful that should cause us to shudder. In the book of 1 Peter, Paul I'm sorry, Peter writes these words. God is opposed to the pride, prideful. God is against the proud. And we may have a lot of problems in life. But when you read that God is against the prideful, that should cause us to take notice and say, Lord, I do not want you to be against me. But to the contrary, he says that God gives grace 
to the humble. Those who recognize their need. And it tells me that it is pride that keeps us from experiencing the grace of God. Rick Barry is considered one of the greats in the NBA. One of his claims to fame is the fact that in his career, he was a 90% free throw shooter. That's impressive. Nine out of every ten free throws he made in his career. And he did it with an unorthodox method. You see, Rick Barry shot the granny shot. Remember, that's where you get the ball, you spread your knees apart, and then you fling the ball up, getting backspin on it. You know, it's hard to argue with the outcome. And Rick Barry would explain to people, from a physics standpoint, this way of shooting makes more sense. There are less things that can go wrong, less things you have to worry about than shooting the, the normal way. When 2008, Discover Magazine had some physicists that wanted to test Rick Barry's assertion. So they put it to the test. Does shooting granny style improve your odds of making a shot? And they found out, yes, it does. Which makes it very hard to understand why more players don't shoot granny style from the free throw line. The reason that has surfaced as to why NBA players today do not shoot granny style. They're too embarrassed to do it. Too proud. It looks silly they say. I would rather miss more shots than look like a granny and score more points. How often does pride keep us from experiencing the blessings of God? What God has in store for us. Simply because I don't, I, I don't want to humble myself before God. Pride is deadly. And it often leads to the next pitfall that motivated these false teachers. The pitfall of fear. Once again, I draw your attention to verse 12. He says, it's out of pride. They want to, to put on a good face in forcing you to be circumcised. Now look at the end of verse 12. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. In other words, the concern for these false teachers was not really the church at Galatia. Their concern was themselves. They were operating out of fear that they would not suffer for the cross of Christ. Fear of persecution forced, drove them to force believers to follow the Torah. And I think there were two fears that drove them. One was political and the other religious. You see, at the time Paul wrote this, the Roman Empire was in solid control of the majority of the known world. And while they would coerce citizens to follow Roman patterns, they granted the Jews a level of acceptance to quell any potential rebellions. So they said, if you are a Jew and you worship one God, that's fine. You can keep doing that. We're not going to force you to follow Roman religions. So these false teachers are thinking, if Christians reject following the Torah, that means they're rejecting Judaism. That means the political authorities will then persecute us as Christians. So we have to maintain at least the facade of following the Torah to escape persecution. And their fear drove them to compromise the gospel. There was also religious fear. 
fear of religious rejection if they didn't fit in. You see, this question to us seems far and removed. But to the early church, this was a huge issue. Do you have to be Jewish to be Christian? There were councils that met at Jerusalem to try to figure this out. And they often applied pressure. Pressure to which even an apostle of the stature of Peter succumbed to. In fact, Peter visited the church in Galatia as recorded in Galatians 2. And it says, before men came from James, that is in Jerusalem, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when these men from Jerusalem came, Peter drew back. He separated himself. Why? Fearing the circumcision party. He was driven by fear from what these other believers would think. Fear of losing status. Fear of losing face. Fear of being found out to be a failure. Fear of looking like a fraud. The problem is today that we are simply afraid of the wrong things. Our pride drives us to the wrong fears. To fear of people rather than fear of God. You know, when... Before becoming pastor here at Trinity in 1995, I was a student at Southwestern Seminary. And the Lord allowed me to pastor a small church in Blum, Texas. From the January of 95 to around uh, August of, I'm sorry, January of 92 to August of 95. Just a neat Texas rural town. One of our neighbors was Kitty Rose McBee. Now if there's a name that belongs in Texas... It's Kitty Rose. She was 93 years old, a widow, but still very spunky. She lived directly behind me and Jody, and one day Jody and I went to visit her to check on her, and she was talking to us, and she said, Now, Pastor, I want to give you some advice. Yes, Miss Kitty Rose, what is it? She said, You know, my husband died of a heart attack. Yes, ma'am, I know. That was several years ago. She said, Well, he died of a heart attack trying to crank up his lawnmower. He cranked it once, and it didn't start. So he cranked it a second time, and it still didn't start. He cranked it a third time, and then he dropped dead. So, Pastor, I'm telling you, if that lawnmower doesn't start after two cranks, don't try it again. (laughs) Advice that I've taken to heart to this day. Now, think about it. She was afraid of the wrong thing. You know, forget all the biscuits and gravy you eat all your life. Let's be afraid of cranking the lawnmower a third time. It's the wrong fear. How many things are we afraid of? Where we fear what others think rather than fearing God. Where we fear the disapproval of others rather than fearing the disapproval of God. Where we fear being shown as weak when we should fear being without a Savior. Fear is a pitfall that has tripped up many Christians wanting to save face to a world that is against Christ. A third pitfall to avoid is that of hypocrisy. Verse 13, Paul says, even those who are circumcised. In other words, even these teachers who are forcing you, encouraging you, uh, coercing you to be circumcised, they themselves do not keep the law. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. He says these false teachers are not obeying the law themselves. 
And it's ironic because, once again, they're not really concerned about the church, the Christians at Galatia. He says, they want to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, they can brag to the other powers, look what we were able to accomplish. Check mark, they were circumcised. We did our job. Everything looks good. Paul says the irony is they're not seeking to follow the Torah themselves. In the words of Jesus, they are ignoring the weightier matters of the law like mercy and compassion. Jesus said that teachers like this are like Pharisees who are like whitewashed tombstones. They look beautiful on the outside, glittering in the sunshine, but beneath them is nothing but dead, rotting bones. Paul's exposing them as playing a game. And he's saying these false teachers know it. You see, hypocrisy is not about a momentary backslidden condition into sin. Where, where we sin and acknowledge it and seek to repent. That's not hypocrisy. That's the reality of life and saying, I need help, Lord. I repent. I turn from my sin. Hypocrisy is a continued charade of simply playing the part of a committed Christian, knowing that there is a disconnect by what our, between what our lips say and what our lives profess. We want to look the part. In many ways, we're like a man who came to a tattoo artist by the name of Dean Gunther. Dean is a tattooist in Manchester, England, and he said a client came to him and had a bold idea. This client was tired of working out, so he said to Gunther, I want you to do a tattoo on my stomach of six-pack abs. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of working out. Gunther said, I was curious to try. So, plus I thought it would be funny. So I gave him a tattoo of six-pack abs. I did research this online. to be You don't have to. The man has a tattoo of six-pack abs. One person summed it up by saying, well, I guess if you can't tone it, tat it. want to look the part. Don't want to put in the work. Don't want to bear the cross, but I want to look like I'm following Christ. We must be on guard against this pitfall of simply looking the part of faith because Paul says that's what's driving these false teachers. Now, with these three pitfalls avoid, the question is then, how do we avoid them? And the way to avoid them is simply to follow the way of the cross. That's what Paul outlines in verses 14 through 18. And he starts by reminding us that the way of the cross means that we have died to the world and the world has died to us. Where Paul says they're boasting in the flesh, Paul comes back and says in verse 14, Far be it to me to boast in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't list his achievements. He doesn't do anything else but point to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul would say, he's done nothing. God has done everything. You see, to boast in the cross is counterintuitive. In fact, in Paul's day, people would not speak of crucifixion because it was considered impolite and not proper to do in public. The cross was about capital punishment. The cross represented guilt and shame. The cross was about death. And Paul says, if I'm going to boast in anything, I will boast about what Jesus did when he died and rose from the dead. You see, by faith, you and I are united with Jesus. 
So as Paul said, when Christ died, we died. When Jesus rose, we rose. We are connected with him in faith. That's why Paul wrote earlier in this book in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ, so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that is freedom. Freedom from the world. Freedom from the system against God. Freedom from sin. That's why Paul can say, I'm no longer a slave to sin. Why? The world, the powers that be have been crucified to me and I to them. There is a power operating in our lives that is greater than the power of sin and the power of death. It has set us free, and it is a power that only comes by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, if you were to go and stand next to one of the massive 747 jets, you would be overwhelmed by its massive weight and size. How in the world can something that size lift itself off the ground, fly at 600 miles an hour at 35,000 feet? Because the law of gravity is pulling it down. But there is another law at work. You apply energy and the law of aerodynamics and this massive airplane that that weighs hundreds of thousands of pounds can overcome the law of gravity. My brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death by the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the things that would destroy us, the sin that would captivate us. We are set free because when Jesus died, he broke the bonds of sin. And when he rose from the dead, he ushered in the new creation. Therefore, as Paul said, we must also say we will not be ashamed of the cross of Jesus Christ because it is life and freedom. Pride has no place in our lives because we were rescued when we could not rescue ourselves. Pride has no place in our lives because we were purchased when we couldn't pay the price. We have been delivered not by our own strength, power, ingenuity but delivered by the grace of God. Therefore let our words echo the words of that old hymn. I will cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Let that be our mantra to a world that does not understand. And we celebrate the cross because through the cross we're part of a new creation. Verse 15 Paul says the bottom line is this. Circumcision doesn't count for anything, nor uncircumcision. So you say, well, Paul, why are you making a big deal out of it then? This is why. Because the teachers were telling them they needed to do something to be saved other than believe in the Lord Jesus. Paul says in the bottom line, it is faith. Not a physical condition that makes us saved. In Jesus, God ushered in the new covenant as he promised to do through the prophets of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of this. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It is that idea that begins the book of Galatians and ends the book of Galatians. It's the, the bookmarks, Galatians 1-4. Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to do what? Deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Galatians 6. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We are delivered from the present evil age because we have been made a new creation. This is the answer to our fear. Why should we fear that which is passing away? Why fear that which is defeated? Why fear loss when in God we have gained everything through faith in Jesus Christ? 
Therefore, we live in the fact that we are a new creation and we are empowered by the Spirit. Through the cross, we are empowered by the Spirit. This is verses 16 through 18. He says, for all who walk by this rule. Now, the word rule there is canon or standard. So the question then is, what is this standard Paul's referring to? I think it's the truth that we have died with Christ and we are a new creation. And we live by this through the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul had been emphasizing in, verses, in chapter 5, verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit. And you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And then even looking down to verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So Paul is saying that for those who live this way are filled with the Spirit, thinking by the Spirit, following the leadership of the Spirit, the consequence is peace and mercy upon them. And then he adds a phrase that has caused no small amount of discussion. And upon the Israel of God. Who is the Israel of God? There are two options, I think. The first option is this. The Israel of God is the people of God defined by faith in Christ throughout all generations. Faith either looking forward to the Messiah or faith looking back in the Messiah. Or, this is the second option, we view it as the nation of Israel itself. I opt for option number one, and this is why. If it is the nation of Israel then this would go against the point that Paul's been making throughout the entire letter, that there is only one people of God defined by faith in Christ. There's not the church and then the Israel of God, but one people. Paul makes the same point in Ephesians. One people of God. This would go contrary to what he wrote in Galatians 3.28 when he said there is neither Jew nor Gentile nor man nor woman nor free or slave for all are in Christ. In fact, Paul wrote in Galatians 3, 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It is faith that makes one a descendant of Abraham, not biological lineage. Now, this is not replacement theology. Some would hold the church replaced Israel, but I don't think that's what the Scripture teaches. I think that the true Israel of God has always been defined by faith. Those who trusted God. Paul makes this same point in Romans chapter 9 verses 6 through 8. When the question of, okay, Jews are coming to faith or Gentiles are coming to faith. What about the Jews? Paul says it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham. Because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring be, shall be named. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now this is the very same point that Paul makes in Galatians 4.28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are what? Children of promise. So he's saying that the Israel of God consists of those who have faith, who believe God. And in the end, 
it's all focused upon Christ because the question comes, well, what about the promises God made to the nation of Israel? And I think those promises are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God, not some of them, not part of them, but all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it's through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So all the promises of land are fulfilled in Christ who does what? Brings in a new heaven and a new earth going far beyond any geopolitical boundaries we think of today. That is why Paul focuses upon Jesus and why Jesus is the center of our faith and everything. There's only one way of salvation and that is Christ Jesus. And that is what doesn't make sense to those who do not believe. That's why persecution occurs. Notice how Paul in verse 17 gets a little dig in. I think Paul could be sarcastic at times. He says, from, no on, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. In other words, these false teachers are telling you that you have to, in some way, have the mark of Jesus on your body in a physical way. Paul says, I've got that already. How? The persecutions he suffered. I think when Paul got out of bed in the morning, his body sounded like milk hitting Rice Krispies. I mean, the man had been beaten with rods, with stones, with whips. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been out at sea at night. He says, these stripes on my back, that authenticates my faith. That shows my seriousness about following Christ. See, that's what the world doesn't understand. There's a plaque that says, those who hear not the music think the dancer is mad. Think about that. If you were to turn on a music video and turn down the volume, it looks ridiculous. But if you turn on the music, it looks a little less ridiculous maybe. But it begins to make sense. Grace doesn't make sense to the world. That's why Paul says, I will glory in the cross. Because that's where the grace of God is made manifest. That's why he ends with this note of grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let grace be our story through and through. There's a lot about the theology of Karl Barth that is very puzzling and things that I may disagree with. But he did make this statement that I do agree with. He said, grace must find expression in life. Otherwise, it's not grace. Grace must find expression in life. Otherwise, it's not grace. That's what Paul's talking about here. Living by the Spirit. Living by grace. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we bow our heads confessing that the same pitfalls that were placed in front of the church of Galatian are the same pitfalls that you and I face, that we face even today. For Lord, they're issues of our heart. So I ask you, O Lord, that you would change our hearts, that we would look to you, seek you, live by your spirit, Father. And Lord, in these moments, speak to our hearts. My brothers and sisters, in an attitude of prayer right now, just take stock. Has pride gained a foothold in your life? 
Maybe there's a wrong that has been done or some way that you're just holding on to, to your pride. And the Lord is saying today, let that go. Maybe fear. Maybe fear has crippled you in some way. Fear of what might be, fear of what others think, and that fear has paralyzed you. The cross took care of that fear. And it may even be a sense of hypocrisy. Where you're aware of the disconnect in your life and the Holy Spirit is saying, submit all of your life to me. Submit all of it. There's a lot of truth in that old hymn, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Today can be that turning point, Sunday, October 22nd, where you say, Lord, my whole life is yours. No more hypocrisy, no more playing a game. I'm going to take the way of the cross. After I finish this prayer, we'll stand and we'll worship God in singing again. And if you want to come and kneel at the kneeling benches to pray, have the freedom to do that. If you'd like me to pray with you, I'll be here. If you want to go to a, a Sunday school teacher, a deacon, or, or someone on the women's council and say, pray with me. I just want us to be free in the spirit this morning. Because that's when we'll know joy and peace. Father, work within our hearts that we would take up our cross, follow Jesus. And know the grace that Paul wrote about. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.